Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor, Forum in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Volk, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 23rd of February. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, each Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. On Monday, US President Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Kyiv to visit Volodymyr Zelensky before setting off to Warsaw, where he gave a speech about the West's need to continue supporting Ukraine. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud, it stands tall, and most important, it stands free. We discuss the importance of Biden's trip and how his speech contrasts with Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address earlier this week. Then we discuss China's relationship with Russia as Beijing's top diplomat visits Moscow and Xi Jinping prepares to give an address laying out his peace plan for the war in Ukraine. China is willing to work with Russia in accordance with the agreements at the highest level to firmly defend respective national territories and national interests. We also take a listener's question on what we got wrong about the war in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. So on Monday, the 21st of February, Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Kyiv to demonstrate what he called America's unwavering support for Ukraine's war effort. To the sound of air raid sirens, Biden and Vladimir Zelensky walked through the city center in what was a pivotal show of solidarity for the besieged country. It was also the first time a U.S. president had visited the country since Russia first launched an attack on Ukraine in 2014. Hours later, Biden made his way to Poland where he again made a public appearance. In an address on Tuesday the 21st, Biden said, 
One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. While I've just come from a visit from Kyiv, and I can report, Kyiv stands strong. Biden's Warsaw speech was a sharp contrast to one made by Russian President Vladimir Putin earlier that day, in which he, unsurprisingly, railed against the West. So, Ido, I wanted to start with you here. Obviously, over the past year, we've seen lots of leaders head to Kyiv. Boris Johnson's appeared several times. Rishi Sunak's gone. Olaf Scholz and Macron visited together. Ursula von der Leyen has gone. What is it about Biden's appearance and the timing of it that's so significant? I think for one thing, you can say that the logistical operation and pulling off the actual trip is really is one of the big sort of achievements. It was carried out in, well, from the reporting that we have about the trip, it was carried out in extensive secrecy. Biden traveled, I think, something like 10 hours both ways into Ukraine by train. He was only in Ukraine for something like five hours. And almost no one knew that he was arriving until he was actually there and he was photographed walking around Kiev with Zelensky. And particularly impressive achievement for the leader of the world's only superpower to arrive in the capital of a country which is actively at war with one of the US's preeminent strategic rivals, with which, of course, Ukraine is, is at war. The kind of operational and security aspects of this cannot be overstated, I think. And more than that, this was, of course, intended as a snub to Putin, who gave typically conspiratorial, sentient Facebook comment speech the day after to mark the one-year anniversary of him, I think, recognizing the independence of these pseudo-republics in eastern Ukraine and launching the war. There's such a clear contrast of optics. Of course, in kind of practical terms, it doesn't end up meaning all that much. I think Biden announced a further package of military support, but we already knew that the US's support for Ukraine was extensive and getting deeper. But the optics of Biden versus Putin um, cannot be overstated. I think. I mean, you think about Biden and he's 80 now, he's by any standard quite old, and he's turning up and doing war crowds in Kyiv during air raid sirens. I don't want to over talk this too much. Clearly, one of the jobs of being an international leader is going to other countries on visits, but it, it really was quite a symbolic and important trip and moment in, in the war, I think, and shows the contrast between the isolation of Putin and the relative international support that Ukraine enjoyed. Yeah, I think the optics of it and the symbolism of it are what's most striking. Obviously, this is a very significant week. The 24th marks one year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. And the West had something new to show. Biden appeared. Biden made the visit. It was obviously a risk to do a lot of publications, a lot of news footage have made a big deal of the fact that the air raid sirens were going off as Zelensky and Biden were walking around through the city center. He's there in an active war zone. So it is a big deal, and but it is real potent demonstration of the West support. And then you contrast that to what Putin has to offer. We've been talking for weeks and months now about Putin needs something to show for the one-year anniversary. He needs some kind of victory. He needs to launch a big offensive. He needs to make some kind of declaration. Some people thought maybe there'd be an indication of that in his State of the Nation address. But Katie, why don't I go to you? Were there any surprises for you in that address? No. (laughs) In a word, as somebody who has sat through more Putin's speeches than is healthy, I feel I could probably have had a reasonable stab at coming up with a draft along the lines of what he said in his speech. This was really a reprisal of 
the very familiar grievances now. So this was Putin claiming that a neo-Nazi regime has seized control of Ukraine, which of course it has not, that the West started the war in Ukraine, which of course it did not, and that Russia has been left with no choice but to defend itself against this Western scheme, which uh, he presents as taking place in Ukraine, which he described as having been transformed into a battering ram in the vision that Putin presents of the world and of the war in Ukraine, although of course he still doesn't call it a war. He presents Ukraine as having been transformed into this sort of anti-Russia, which is being used as a springboard for the West's attacks against Russia and as part of this grand nefarious scheme to seize ultimate control of the world, which of course is all complete nonsense. But I, it, we can't disregard it. This is the reality in which Putin is clearly living. This is the case that he is presenting for this war at home. And I think one thing I took from his speech is that almost the lack of anything new is the point, that this was intended to signal we are committed to this. I am going to hold this course longer than you. I care more about Ukraine and its future orientation than you do in the West. So I am not backing down. I am very committed to this war. Frankly, I can stick this out for longer than you can. I think one point that people seized on was this reiteration again of, of Putin's nuclear threats. And I think the sort of one substantive thing that came out of it was announcing that he's suspending Russia's participation in the New START Treaty which is the last remaining strategic arms control treaty between the US and Russia. So that is significant. It's not at all surprising. I was speaking to a diplomat just last week who was saying he was very concerned about the potential for being able to renew this treaty, which as it stands is due to expire in 2026. This was not a shock to anyone, but it is nevertheless a confirmation of the fact that Putin is very clearly still prepared to invoke the threat of Russia's nuclear arsenal. And he is essentially signaling that he's not going anywhere and he's not backing down. And I think having watched the two speeches back to back on Tuesday, Putin speaking first in Moscow and then Biden speaking in Warsaw, I think one common point to draw from both of them is that they are both talking about essentially the future global order now at stake in Ukraine and they are both signaling that this is a long-term contest and there's no indication that either leader sees this as a war that's going to end anytime soon. But Megan, I also wanted to ask you if I could, because you were at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend, where we saw in public really what seemed to be a very unified message from the US and from European diplomats in terms of their continued support for Ukraine. And we saw I don't know what the collective noun for American politicians descending en masse, but you had a, a flurry of re Republican and Democratic senators and, and Congress people descending on Munich. What did you take away from that conference about the sort of strength and depth of Western resolve on Ukraine? So this is really interesting, and I was quite surprised. A lot of the conversations I had around the kind of American contingent that was there stressed how big the contingent was. So I think it's almost 50 politicians from across the aisle, so Republicans and Democrats who, who went, which some were saying they thought was the largest that had ever attended the security conference. And 
all were quite adamant about stressing the fact that the U.S. is largely unified, that, you know, some of these quite far, very vocal agitators in the Republican Party who are, and I count Donald Trump now in in this contingent, but who are questioning support for Ukraine and saying, you know, we should turn off the tap, we shouldn't be doing this any longer. There was a real urgency to the message of the Republicans and the Democrats, but really from the Republicans who were in, in Munich, that those voices don't reflect the wider GOP. So Mitch McConnell was especially really vocal, telling a lot of the press and a lot of the different delegates he was meeting with that the Republican Party does stand behind Ukraine. Now, obviously, we do know there's an election coming in two years, that or next year, actually. Time is flying too fast. But yeah, so by the time the election happens... A lot could have changed. A lot could have changed with the war in Ukraine. But there is a real chance that Donald Trump or Donald Trump-like figure, such as Ron DeSantis, who is also questioning support for Ukraine, could be in power. And that could dramatically shift the stakes. But for the moment, the U.S. was pretty, pretty clear in selling the message that they are unified as was by and large Western leaders and representatives that were at the security conference. But I should also point out that the security conference is, I mean, it's called been called a Western talking shop. So representation from the rest, as opposed to the West, isn't really huge. Russia wasn't invited this year. Iran was invited, but then was disinvited. There isn't a huge representation from the global South in general, although I guess there was a significant number of Latin American representatives as opposed to other years. But you do really sense the lack of global South voices. And as Ido, you've done a piece just this week looking at some really interesting polling, and it just shows that the West might still be 100% unified or 95% or enough unified that we can say the West is standing behind Ukraine. But The world is big and there's a lot of countries that are not included in the West and who are wary of the West's narrative. You know, what was the most surprising thing, I guess, you learned from the polling that you wrote about? So this is polling from the European Council on Foreign Relations, a think tank, which polled the US, something they called Great Britain. I'm not entirely sure whether that's the island of Great Britain or inaccurate shorthand for the UK, but anyway, and nine EU countries. And then they also polled Russia, India, China and Turkey on various attitudes to the war in Ukraine. And if you're if you're interested, we'll put a link to the piece in the show notes. You can go and check out the whole findings. But the kind of main takeaway for me was the polling shows just an enormous gulf between views of Russia, between countries which can be termed non-Western, and China, India, and Turkey, and countries which which are viewed as part of the West, so the US, what the ECFL calls Great Britain, and nine countries in the EU. So just as an example of kind of the enormous difference between these two blocks. So in the US, Great Britain and these nine countries in the EU, around 70% view Russia either as an ad- adversary or as a rival. And the proportions who view them as, as an adversary are much larger than the proportions which view Russia as a rival. And the proportions are completely inversed in China, Turkey and India, where around 70% in each case view Russia as an ally or as a partner. Now, more people view relatively more people view Russia as a partner than an ally. 
except in India, where 50% view Russia as an ally. But nonetheless, but, and so through these figures, you can just see this enormous gulf in attitudes. And it really shows that the narrative, and it is a narrative. I've had a few people this morning get annoyed at me for using the word narrative, but it is a narrative. A narrative is an account of events which a particular party tells. And the West has a particular narrative on Ukraine, which many people in the West view as the truth. But nonetheless, it is a certain account of events presented a certain way. And that narrative just hasn't taken hold in other parts of the world. And it really shows that what we think is a kind of existential conflict for the West is just not viewed the same in non-Western countries. And that shouldn't really be that much of a surprise. The West has often not really cared about conflicts in the global South. And now the global South doesn't really care about conflicts in in the global north. And that's things considered not too much of a surprise, I think. But it does have implications for the kind of future course of the war, because of course, China, for example, we'll talk about this a bit later, but China's hoped to have a relatively big role in any kind of diplomatic efforts to end the war. And Turkey is strategically vital for both Ukraine and Russia. Russia is selling more oil to India to compensate for uh, lower exports to the West. This all has a massive, massive impact on the course of the war. We listed a couple of pieces that we've we've been covering about this on the New Statesman, so I'll link it below. But Ido teed up a nice moment for me to segue into our next discussion, which is on China, where Xi Jinping is preparing to give a speech in Beijing on Friday, the 24th of February, which marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. And he's expected to present a proposal for what's been called a peace arrangement between Russia and Ukraine. Now, this comes off the back of his top diplomat, Wang Yi's visiting Moscow this week and follows U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warning that China was considering supplying lethal aid, that is weapons, to Russia. Katie, why don't we start with Wang Yi's visit to Moscow? So in recent days, he's met with Blinken, Emmanuel Macron. So what is the purpose of going to Moscow now? As the visit might have been envisaged at the outset, you can see him going to the Munich Security Conference, I think perhaps with the idea that it would be possible to put some distance between the US and Europe, really to push this idea that it is the US that is perpetuating this war, it is the US that is overwhelmingly the biggest provider of military aid to Ukraine and that other countries should agree with China that what is important is halting the war rather than halting the war in a just sense or in a sense that necessarily returns Ukraine's sovereignty and control of its over its borders to it. He did not get a good reception for that message. I think if he was hoping to split the US from Europe, he perhaps achieved the opposite. It wasn't helped by the fact that right on the eve of that visit, as you said, Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, was overtly warning that US intelligence believes that China is now strongly considering providing lethal aid to Russia, which it hasn't done so far. It's basically gone right up to the line of supporting Russia. So it's provided a huge amount of economic support. It's really increased the the volume of Russian energy exports, like oil and gas that it's buying. It's really provided an economic lifeline to Russia. It's provided plenty of diplomatic support for Russia and a lot of informational support, so amplifying Russian narratives about the war. Um, but it has stopped short of breaching 
sanctions, or at least openly doing so, and it has stopped short of military aid. The US believes that it is now on the threshold of deciding whether to cross that line or not. Set against that, you now have Wang Yi flying on to Moscow and discussions of this peace plan that uh, is likely to take the form of, I, I think, a document that could be released this week and a speech by Xi Jinping on Friday. I think we should approach it all with a huge amount of, I guess, cynicism, or at least a very clear-eyed view of where China has stood and still appears to be standing on this conflict, which is that China is not neutral. It has tried to balance, some analysts have described this as a strategic swaddle since the start of the war, of trying to appear neutral in public and calling repeatedly for things like both sides to show restraint, calling for a halt to the fighting, expressing concern about civilian casualties, but never once condemning Russia's actions. And that calling for restraint and treating this as though this is a sort of both sides issue, both Ukraine and Russia need to exercise restraint, need to find a way to halt the fighting, by ignoring the fact that one country is fighting for its life against an invasion by the other, that is already taking a position. That is already not a neutral approach. So when China offers its peace plan, and we don't know what it, what it will involve, what we've heard so far from Wang Yi is that it will include a call for respect for territorial integrity, that it may include a declaration that nuclear war should not be fought and that civilian nuclear facilities must be protected, but also that legitimate security concerns must be respected, which is effectively shorthand for saying Russia had a basis for doing this. There is also some reporting today from Bloomberg that it could include, as part of calls for a ceasefire, a call for an end to arms supplies to Ukraine, which would be a non-starter as far as the US and its allies are concerned. So I think we should just be wary of where China stands on this and understand that China is functionally on Russia's side, even if it isn't explicitly coming out and saying so. That said, definitely China would be very happy if the war ended tomorrow. This war does not benefit Chinese interests. It would certainly like to see a stop to the fighting. It just doesn't want to do so on any terms that result in a de facto Russian defeat or which could undermine Putin's regime in Moscow. I think the overwhelming concern for China, and Ido is absolutely right to contextualize this in terms of how the conflict is seen across plenty of the global south. China sees this primarily through the prism of its own contest with the United States. And it is concerned that if Russia is defeated and if Putin falls from power, if his regime is seriously threatened, then the United States will be able to turn all of its attention to the contest with China and rallying all of the allies that it has, you know, the rejuvenated NATO that we've seen as a result of this conflict has also talked about the strategic threat from China. So China doesn't want Russia to collapse, Russia to, cap to capitulate. It wants Russia to survive this conflict, to remain a partner in its own contest with the United States. So those are that is the perspective from which it's coming to this. And that is why we should be wary that, yes, China does want there to be peace. But no, it is very unlikely to call for a full Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. And I think there is no reason to believe that 
China particularly cares what happens to Ukraine's territorial integrity in the long term. So that's a very long way of saying, I think we should just be very clear about where China is coming to this from. And yes, China would love to be seen as a peacemaker. Xi Jinping will certainly present China as a country that believes strongly in peace and that it is a force for good in the world. But its actions over the last 12 months suggest the reality is somewhat more complicated. I'm just wondering if there's any theories. So if obviously China doesn't want Russia to lose or be severely weakened by the war. And that that makes perfect sense. It's completely understandable. But then the, I guess the the logical conclusion that I would come to, or maybe someone in the West would come to, is that Xi would be putting pressure on Putin to withdraw, get out of the war, because obviously the longer it goes on, the weaker and the more likely that Russia is to have some kind of severe economic harm, potential escalation, which involves NATO or the US getting involved. How much of that risk is Xi Jinping willing to tolerate versus how much is he not wanting to actually put direct pressure on Putin? I guess I see the parallel with the Putin-Xi relationship, really as with China's relationship with North Korea, where for decades now, the West has presumed that China has some leverage and some influence. And in economic terms, it does. It's 90% of North Korea's external trade. So why doesn't China translate that influence into persuading Kim to stop the very provocative nuclear and missile tests? Why doesn't China bring North Korea into line? And I see the calculation as being quite similar as that towards Russia, where I don't... China's approach to diplomacy is generally not telling other countries what to do. So I find the idea that she would sit down with Putin and say, we would greatly appreciate it if you would stop this war. We think you've made a fundamental mistake. We think you're really heading for a a comprehensive defeat here. I just don't think that's how these discussions go. I think it's more likely that China approaches it as we understand you're making your own judgment about your interests. We understand the importance of respect for your own security concerns. Here are our concerns about the potential instability in the global system. And I think for a long time, we've sort of analytical consensus on China's approach to North Korea is that there's basically three priorities. Number one is no war, as in no repeat of the Korean War, no superpower conflict over North Korea no collapse. They don't want to see the Kim regime collapse. They don't want to, partly because that would then likely see the peninsula unified under control of the South, and that would bring a US ally right up to China's border. And number three is no nukes. And that's really significantly lower than the other two priorities. So as long as they can stop short of a wider global conflagration and regime collapse, then they can live with the nuclear weapons. Would they prefer Kim didn't do ICBM tests and test nuclear weapons? Yes, absolutely. I think there's reason to believe she is deeply impatient with a lot of Kim's behavior. But can they actually change that behavior? And are they prepared to to risk the relationship over it? Like Consistently, the answer has been no. So I think it's somewhat similar in the approach to Russia. I've heard one, one really great analyst, Sasha Gabuev, describe this as China effectively thinks of Russia like a weather system. It can't change it. It can only make its best 
predictions about where it's heading and then it draws maximum advantage from the aftermath. But it doesn't view it as a country that it can control or direct or fundamentally change change its behavior. So I think that's the sort of approach that China takes to Russia. And I think there is reason to believe that the relationship between Putin and Xi is fairly solid. We think that Xi is going to travel to Moscow this spring. So I think framing this all as part of China's push for global peace really helps China. It's smart diplomacy. It frames what would otherwise risk turning China into a complete pariah, whose leader is flying to stand alongside Putin, even while he wages war on Ukraine, into China's leader is doing everything he can to bring this conflict to an end. So it's a smart strategy, but I don't think it necessarily gets us closer to a meaningful resolution to the conflict or anything close to to returning Ukraine's sovereignty. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. So a listener asks, as we approach the one-year anniversary of the war, what did the team get wrong about the conflict over the last 12 months? I think it might be a shorter answer to say, what did we get right? I, I don't know where... Ido and you, Megan, stand on this, but I feel I got a huge amount wrong. Number one, I'll start by saying like I I distinctly remember having a conversation with Ido on the podcast right before the start of the invasion last year where we were talking about just how impossible the military objectives looked, trying to take over a country of more than 40 million people with around 200,000 soldiers and why Putin would be prepared to risk his economy, Russia's global position, Russia's future for what he functionally had already, which was control of Crimea and and control over parts of eastern Ukraine. So I did not fully understand how much Putin was prepared to risk that he would be prepared to jeopardize the Russian economy. If you had asked me a year ago, would Putin be prepared to take the political risk of a mass mobilization in Russia? I would have said no. And I think the expectation was ahead of the invasion that Ukraine would suffer not a complete military defeat. I think we all viewed this as this would lightly turn into a long-term conflict with a substantial guerrilla and partisan resistance to any attempted Russian occupation. But I certainly didn't expect the Russian military to turn out to be as weak and incompetent as it has been and to have been so swiftly and soundly rebuffed. I'll let Edo go next with his own mea culpa. But yeah, I think I got a huge amount wrong over the last year. Yeah, I agree with Katie. I won't go back over the military stuff. Uh, if you really enjoy me self-flagellating, then we did an episode about what we got wrong around the new year. You can go back and listen to that in which I talk about getting the military aspects wrong. A couple of other things I got wrong. I thought the sanctions would be a lot more devastating on Russia than they actually were. There were predictions of a 12% contraction in GDP when the actual fall was 3.5%, according to the World Bank. So I thought the sanctions imposed on Russia would be a lot more devastating than they actually were. Obviously, there's been some kind of clever economics and sanctions busting and circumventing by the Russian authorities. Um more broadly, I think I thought that Russians would be a lot more opposed to this war than they actually have turned out to be. Before the invasion, I I said that millions of Russians have been to Ukraine, have relatives in Ukraine. Um, It's not like the US invading Iraq, like it's a country right next to Russia, which used to be part of the same country where millions of Russians have family or were born or have traveled and have very close personal links. And I thought that would, and I thought an invasion of that country would a kind of blatant, blatant, nakedly unprovoked attack on such a country would provoke much more opposition than it actually has. There's been some opposition, but unfortunately at this point, I think we can say that all meaningful opposition 
inside Russia to the war has been crushed. And I don't think we have very much evidence of kind of mass popular support for the war, but we don't have evidence of mass popular opposition to the war. Most people, perhaps the majority, seem to be relatively ambivalent and holding their head down and hoping that it all goes away. And I thought that wouldn't be the case, which is possibly due to my own biases, the people that I know in Russia, the kinds of people who tend to be quite liberal and obviously are opposed to this war, but clearly that's not the majority of the country and that's that's something I got wrong. I would say that I, I both overestimated Russia's military capability, which, I mean, it wasn't long into the conflict that it became clear that Russia's reputation as a military superpower, the reality wasn't quite matching the myth there. And I more sadly underestimated Ukrainian strength. I I did think we'd either see Zelensky flee or be assassinated in the early days. That obviously didn't happen. I did think we would see tanks rolling through Kyiv and that didn't happen. And especially in those early days, so much of that was through like the sheer force of will of like volunteer civilians just helping to stop, you know, the line's moving forward. And now, thanks to Western support, there's been a huge, massive welcome influx of military aid and equipment. But I think, yeah, especially in those initial days, the first week didn't play out the way I thought it was going to. And yeah, looking back at it, it's just astonishing even to think about the conversations we were having in meetings those first few days and how much has changed since then. Although the war is still continuing, but yeah, it just... It looks like we're in a much different place now. Well, good therapy session, everybody. Yeah, I don't think I really want to rule in any more of my uh, flaws. So let's <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. And thank you for provoking this particular soul searching. Listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday, where I'll be interviewing the economist and professor Mariana Mazzucato on her new book, The Big Con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments, and warps our economies. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please do. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a great review. Our producer today has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.